Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known all they made known the saying that they had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Pray with me, please. O gracious Christ, we celebrate your birth this day. May we delight in your word, may we be shaped by it, and may we trust you greater as we follow you down a road that may look unlike what we think it should look like. We thank you and we praise you, O Lord. We ask that your words would be spoken this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You can be seated. All right. So, as we go through this season every year, right, um, one company has really come to the forefront of American Christmas, and that's Amazon, right? I'm astounded and admittedly a little scared and probably a bit annoyed by their efficiency, right? Do you forget to buy a gift? Not a worry. It'll be at your house within the day. Unsure of what to buy? Well, you've got thousands of reviews to make a decision. Do you want to be completely sure of when your package will arrive? Great news there. We've got tracking so you can see how many stops are left before that box is on your porch. Not sure what to ask for? Here's 200 suggestions based on the items you've viewed and purchased this year, and you can add them to a list which you can send to your family so they know exactly what to get. Do you hate surprises? Well, this is great. You can track every item on your list to see if it's been purchased. Afraid you'll be disappointed? Just take advantage of the free returns. And as remarkable as all this stuff is from a logistical standpoint, like I remember 15 years ago, the idea that you could have anything within a day was absurd, and and now it's real. There's actually a lot of really unhealthy stuff behind our love affair with Amazon and and Prime and this instantaneous lifestyle. I mean, is there a huge need to see the brilliant gleam of the automatic tooth flosser within one day of ordering it? Or do we as a society have problems with waiting? 
did the process of giving gifts still work when there was no assurance of a free return and no way to make sure you've gotten everything you wanted? Or are we afraid of being disappointed when things don't go exactly as planned? For my money, I think it's the latter in both cases. Within my own home, my wife and I are in agreement that we would rather go out and be told there's an hour wait for a table than wait an hour after being told it's a 10-minute wait. And additionally, if we end up waiting that long and the food is bad, that's just an absolute tragedy, right? So we, we have these problems with waiting and disappointment. And I think uh, one of my favorite episodes of the show Community really hits this on the head. Uh, for those who don't know, Community is a late 2000s NBC comedy it was largely overshadowed by some other really big NBC comedies at the time. And it follows a study group at a community college. Um, so one of my favorite episodes is in season one, it's called Social Psychology. And while I'm not going to recount the whole episode, though I could, uh, there's one storyline that stuck with me for 14 years. Uh, one of the main characters is recruited by a psychology professor to help him run a social experiment. In the experiment, a number of other students are told that they're going to be interviewed, and they're asked to sit in a waiting room for their turn. The catch is that there is no interview. An assistant goes into the waiting room every so often to tell the participants that it will be just a few more minutes. The goal of the experiment was to test the idea that the longer someone waits, the more explosive their reaction is when they finally lose it. Mild spoilers ahead for a 14-year-old show. Uh, one by one, subjects leave with increasing reactions until at last one person remains. And much to the chagrin of the professor, he continues to wait patiently for 26 hours. Uh, at which point the professor begins throwing a tantrum, leaving, claiming his theory is ruined. Um, and as silly as that sounds, and as much as I laugh watching it every time, I'm shameless, um, I think there's a lot of truth to be taken from it, right? First off, it's infinitely easier to wait for something when you know how long you'll be waiting for. I can't say this is the case for all of us, but most people seem to think the same way, right? We are okay with waiting, but we have to know how long it's going to take. And it's the times where we see no end in sight that are most devastating, right? Let's take in mind the year 2020. In March, we were told two weeks to flatten the curve. I hear some chuckles, so you know where I'm going with this. Uh, then two weeks turned into four, and four turned into months. I wasn't complaining. I was able to work from home at the time. Uh, that commute was gone, but it kept getting longer and longer. And I'm not suggesting there was any way at the, that the end of a global pandemic could have been predicted more accurately, but I am saying that I can't be alone in having felt devastated every time I read about measures being tightened again. But it doesn't have to be a global pandemic that we think about. How many of us have looked for a new job and heard nothing back, right? All while throwing our applications into what feels like the void, right? It gets tougher and tougher to hope when things aren't actually getting better. And additionally, we can look at that professor's tantrum at the end when not everybody breaks down and we can see our own obsession with things going to plan. A quick snapshot here is uh, my morning commute. It's about 30 to 40 minutes, and most days I plan to use it as a time to have quiet and even listen to a daily portion of my Bible reading plan. 
Unfortunately, the quiet and peace and focus only last until someone slows down too quickly for a yellow light, or until traffic starts to clog, or heaven forbid someone calls me while I'm driving and breaks the quiet that I was trying to enjoy. And I can't be alone in saying that life would be easier if everything I set out to do went exactly as I planned it. Um, and with these things in mind, as we think through waiting and things not going to plan, I think our text this morning, a text that famous and animated theologian Linus Van Pelt said is what Christmas is all about, can shed a lot of light as we place our sermon text into the greater context of scripture. So from here, I want to talk in three parts. The long-expected Christ, the unexpected Jesus, and living in hope. So part one, the long-expected Christ. As the angels appeared, right, they told the shepherds that a savior had been born, and they called him the Christ, which is a word very, very closely related to the word Messiah in Hebrew. Um, some of us may be tempted to think that Christ is Jesus' last name. It is not. Uh, it is a title, right? Imagery of the Messiah is littered through the Old Testament, and I do want to take a few minutes as we talk through this long-expected Christ to walk through some of that imagery and put the weight that had just ended into perspective when the shepherds were given this good news. So we're going to make the fair assumption that these shepherds were Jewish, um, and that's going to help us along the way. When they're told that a Savior is born in the city of David, they don't need to ask any questions about who the angels are talking about. They already have a pretty good idea based on the culture they grew up in. Right? A savior in the city of David should bring to mind the coming of a second David. Right? Something that Jews had been waiting for for quite a while. And how long exactly? Well, an exact date on David's reign is tough to point down, but most people would agree it's about 1000 BC. So we've got about 1000 years to wait here. Um, and during David's reign, he makes a covenant with God, and this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, God makes a promise to David that his house and his kingdom will endure forever before God, and that someone from David's line will sit on the throne forever. Now, that naturally happens right away, right? No, not at all. Um, unfortunately, this perfect kingdom doesn't last forever. It lasts maybe two generations Right? After the death of David's son Solomon, we see the kingdom of Israel divided in two, uh, split by civil war, split by differences in worship. Um, and while David's line stays in power in the south, this united kingdom is gone. Um, so we look forward. Right? We've got a split kingdom. Things are going great. Um, a little over 200 years later, we're going to jump into the book of Isaiah, um, where we've been for the last month. And we see a ton of messianic prophecy there. And the one that I think of first is in chapter 9. Um, in verses 6 and 7, we read this. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. You have no idea how hard it was for me to read that, not in the tone of George Friedrich Handel's Messiah. Um, it's easier to sing, right? But we see Isaiah speaking about God himself, ruling from the throne of David. 
But things in Israel don't go in that direction. During Isaiah's lifetime, the people of Judah saw the northern kingdom destroyed by the Assyrians, right? Possibly family members of them taken away um, by an empire. And while some of the kings, namely Hezekiah, seemed pretty good, things got worse and worse and worse. And eventually we see Judah themselves carried off into exile, all with this promise in their ears that God is going to reign over them. And while in exile, right, so David at this point has been dead for about 350 years. We're waiting on a second David, and we start to hear rumblings again in the prophet Ezekiel, right? So when we read Ezekiel 34, uh, verses 23 and 24, we read this. And I will set up, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So hope is alive, right? Maybe the band is going to get back together. And we get a glimmer of hope, right? Babylon falls to Persia. Darius sends the exiles back to Judah. But it's not like it was. Judah's been decimated. The temple and the city walls are gone. They have to be rebuilt. And more importantly, these people need to be rebuilt. And after being destroyed by Assyria, nearly destroyed by Assyria, taken over by Babylon, and now home because of another conquest, the confidence of these people has to be at an all-time low. The hope that David was coming back was probably starting to feel scarcely more than a fairy tale at this point. The last prophet in the Old Testament speaks, uh, Malachi, sorry, I just said that and assumed we all knew, and it's in my notes. Uh, the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, speaks of God being with his people as well, right? So after we start rebuilding the temple, we rededicate it, the walls are getting built. Malachi's writing, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, while it's only the turn of one page for us to go from Malachi into the Gospels, for the Jews, it was about 400 years, right? This is the same length of time between Puritans landing at Plymouth Rock and the release of the iPhone 15. Um, so that, that helps us at all. Uh, and so again, Jews would wait their entire lives and their children's entire lives and their children's entire lives for something they wouldn't see fulfilled. And in honesty, after Malachi, things got worse again. In 332 BC, the Greeks take over Judah, uh, meaning now we have yet another empire ruling over them. But this one doesn't allow them the freedoms that the Persians did. Uh, and we can see how this Greek occupation went if we look in 2 Maccabees, which, while it's not a part of our Bible, is really helpful if we're looking to understand the Jews in that period between the prophets and the Gospels. Um, so this is an account of relations with the Greeks there. Uh, this is chapter 6, if anyone is curious. The king sent an Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors and no longer live by the laws of God, also to pollute the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of Olympian Zeus and to call the one in Gerizim Zeus the friend of strangers as the people who live in that place are known. Harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil, for the temple was filled with debauchery and reviling by the nations who dallied with prostitutes 
and within the sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws. People could neither keep the Sabbath nor observe the festivals of their ancestors, nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews. So I'm going to pause and ask, 700 years after David, are things getting better? And I think we all know the answer. So we see that despite hundreds of years of promises and prophecies, things just keep getting worse. After the Greeks, we see the Romans arrive, uh, which carries us up to the point of the shepherds when they're given the good news. So a quick recap, right? In the last thousand years of Jewish history that we covered in a few minutes, uh, we've had a kingdom split. We've had half of it be destroyed. We've had the other half taken into exile. When that when they came back, when this other half comes back from exile, we see them being taken over by three different empires, all while having prophecies told to them that things would get better eventually. So the news that it's getting better now had to have knocked these shepherds on their faces. They were receiving a message that generations, long forgotten, had lived their whole lives waiting for. And when we think back on the Advent season, it's, it's those years of tough waiting that we want to keep in our minds and our hearts, right? We take immense joy from Christ's birth because we understand how difficult and how long the wait was. Um, and in many ways, we still wait ourselves, and we'll, we'll touch on that later. So that's, that's the, the long-expected Christ, right? There has been an infinitely long wait, and it seems like things are finally going to get better. Um, so now we dive into the unexpected Jesus. Um, so now that we have a better understanding of how long the wait for the Messiah is, we can talk about why Jesus might be so unexpected. Now, what do I mean when I say unexpected here? Well, just that. After hundreds upon hundreds of years of waiting on their Savior, do any of us think Jesus was the person that was truly expected? Right? The shepherds received good news of great joy. The angels came to them, which in itself is a surprise. The scene must have been, to quote famous soccer commentator Ray Hudson, absolutely magisterial, right? Can we imagine their surprise then when they're told to go to what is essentially a barn to find a baby laying in a food trough? What about when they get there and the child's non-affluent, non-important parents are from the backwater town of Nazareth in Galilee? There was probably no doubt in the shepherds' minds that the angels had told them the truth. But this couldn't have been what they expected. Now, as surprising as the circumstances of Jesus' birth were, um, we know through the great piece of American cinema, Talladega Nights, that Jesus did grow up. He was eventually a man, and he had a beard. Right? This man with a beard would continue to do the unexpected through his whole life. In one of his most famous dialogues, the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus, who is supposed to be helping the Jews gain freedom from their oppressors. Let's think back to those prophecies. He's going to sit on the throne of David, right? Well, now he's talking about how the poor, meek, and oppressed are actually blessed. Not only that, but he commands all those listening to him to love those who hate and persecute them. Now, quick question from the room. Does anybody know where in the Sermon on the Mount 
Jesus tells everyone about the army he's building to expel the Romans. Oh, I was really hoping somebody said nothing. I was really hoping nobody had an answer for that one, right? At this point, right, it doesn't feel like Jesus is getting ready to claim any sort of throne that anyone is thinking about. And as we fast forward a bit, we see Jesus doing something that looks pretty royal and regal, right? He enters Jerusalem to shouting and praise while riding a donkey, who for my money is probably named Dominic. Um, Sorry, I had to sneak that in there. Um, which is something that would have shifted, right? So he's entering the city of Jerusalem to shouting, riding a donkey, and this is something that would have shifted the minds of the observant to the words of Zechariah, uh, where he writes that your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I want all of you to know how hard it was for me to not sneak that reference in earlier about the donkey, and then it ended up being really hard, and I didn't do it. My notes said I wasn't going to do it, and I did. Um, right? But anyway, Jesus is coming into the holy city in a way that was prophesied, and people are loving it. Maybe this is where he starts meeting the expectations and where things start to go good for all the Jews who are sick of Roman occupation. Maybe this is where the revolution starts, right? Wrong. Jesus spends time in Jerusalem teaching, healing the sick, and frustrating a lot of the Jewish leaders in the city, but never building an army, starting to push out the Romans. And only four days later, after this triumphant entry, we see Jesus being betrayed into the hands of those who wish him harm. But it's not as simple as being captured and overwhelmed. Even here, Jesus is doing the unexpected. Um, We read in John chapter 18, uh, verses 4 to 11 here, this. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, Let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So in this episode, we see Jesus' power. Right? He speaks the words, I am, the name of God to them. And these soldiers fall to the ground before him. And this is where the disciples are probably thinking the turning point is coming. We have this evidence, right? Simon Peter pulls out a sword. He's ready for stuff to go down. But wait. Jesus doesn't start the fight. He turns himself in. And he goes willingly to mocking, to torture, and to death. And at that point, it's beginning to seem like this Jesus guy is just like everyone else who has claimed to bring hope to God's people. Now, sitting in this room this morning, we have the benefit of hindsight. 
And we know that Jesus, to paraphrase uh, Gonzo the Great, as Charles Dickens, did not stay dead. And that he rose again on the third day, just as he had foretold. But even in his resurrection, he does something no one expects. Even though he's told his disciples about this, they still don't expect it. He leaves. What shows me that Jesus is miles from what everyone expected is in Acts, chapter 1, verse 6, when after the resurrection and right before the ascension, the disciples ask Jesus if now is the time when he will restore the kingdom to Israel. They've seen Jesus work miracles. They've lived with him for three years. They've seen him dead and buried, only to come back, and they still don't seem to fully understand what's happening. I can see myself in their shoes, though. The disciples had become so entrenched in what they expected that it was hard for them to see what Jesus was actually doing and calling them to do. And as we follow Jesus, we should expect him to surprise us. If Jesus only does and says what you expect him to do and say, then I'd like to congratulate you on your membership to the Holy Trinity. Um, put simply, because we're not God, there are often going to be times where his actions surprise us or seem wrong to us. And I don't think it's wrong to ask questions at that point, but we can learn from the book of Job that God does not owe us an explanation when he acts in ways we don't expect. Our call is to trust, to know that all things he is working for our salvation. And I realize that it's really easy to take a side-eyed glance at what I've just said, right? Following someone we don't agree with in our modern age seems insane, right? Think of, think of voting records. We've become very, all right, do they do this? Do they do that? Do they do this? Do they do that? Right? Um, we don't have the advantage of going issue by issue and deciding if we like Jesus. Um, we're called to follow. Um, and that skepticism is well warranted, right? But I want to think about the alternative. If God isn't the arbiter of what's right and wrong, and if God is bound in his actions by human desire, then he's not truly a king. Instead, we are. And I'm not sure about anybody else in the room, but the idea that I have to be the chief decision maker in all things right and wrong is terrifying. Right? Yesterday, I was changing my crying newborn, and I called him by my oldest son's name. If I can't keep my kid's name straight, especially since I only have two, what right do I have to decide how the universe should run? And on a more serious note, let's, let's be honest here. If I got to decide what was right and wrong, 100% of the time, the right answer would be the thing that's advantageous to me. I know in my heart that I'm selfish, that I'm prideful. These aren't the qualities of God. And so as I follow behind, those are the things that come along, right? To accept Jesus is king, is to accept his rule over everything. And to do that, means accepting that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, but that he's ultimately good, and that he knows what he's doing, that he's working for our salvation, even when we don't fully see it or understand it or agree with it. And so that's the unexpected Jesus, the real Jesus, the unexpected one. Uh, so to close now in part three, living in hope.
Right? We've talked about waiting a really long time for Messiah. We've talked about the surprises that come with the actual Messiah. So what do we do with all that? Right? The ascension where the disciples were told that Jesus would return and the way that he left them was nearly 2,000 years ago. That's twice as long as the time between David and Jesus. So we find ourselves waiting again. And how do we deal with it? Well, let's return back to our sermon text to try and find some answers. We're told that two reactions took place once the shepherds arrived. We're told that Mary, the mother of our Lord, treasured up all that had been said and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned to where they came from, glorifying and praising God. So even though Mary definitely knew more than the pentatonics would give her credit, um, I don't think neither she nor the shepherds knew exactly how the next 30 years would pan out. What they did know was what the angels had said. At this point, Mary also knew what she had been told by the angel Gabriel at the Annunciation, that her son would be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. She also has in her mind her visit to Elizabeth, which reinforced that she was carrying the promised Messiah. As Elizabeth asked her, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So when we look to Mary and the shepherds in this passage, we see them taking what they do know and living in hope that the rest will come to pass and praising God all along the way. And it's the same in our own lives, right? We haven't seen Jesus return in his glorious appearance. So we're left to carry on with what we do know and attempt to follow Christ and work his will and praise him until he returns. So as we think about living in hope, let's take a few seconds to talk about what we do know. Lost my place. Right, there we go. Uh, <laughs> we know that the Old Testament prophesied the Messiah. We know that the amount of prophecies clearly fulfilled in the life of Jesus are too many to be a coincidence. We know that Jesus told his followers we would one day rise from the dead on the third day. We know that he did rise from the dead on the third day. We know that at his ascension, he promised the Holy Spirit would come and dwell with his people. And we know that 10 days later, the Spirit was given to the apostles and that Thousands came to faith in that day. And so when we're told that Christ will return once again to rule over the whole world and that he will create a new heaven and a new earth, that evil will be defeated, that every bad thing will come untrue, I think we can feel pretty secure that he'll be true to his promises. And so as we think through this season of Christmas, we can rejoice immensely at the things that Christ has already done while also waiting, hopefully, on the return of that same Jesus to bring its world to full restoration, worshiping all the way along. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, 
on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.